That didn't really work that way in Australia, to be honest. You know, there was really some serious backlash from the public ultimately with with respect to how people were, were treated um, in the in the offshore situations in Australia. So I don't and and we know that the Australian offshoring system is basically defunct now. It doesn't really exist in the same way as it did before. So I mean it could be a very elaborate way to just create a lot of unnecessary suffering for people for something that will actually be very um, unworkable. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. On the 14th of April, the British government signed a memorandum of understanding with the government of Rwanda for the provision of an asylum partnership agreement in previous episodes, you'll no doubt have heard our guests lament the possibility of people who seek asylum in Britain having their claims processed on some offshore island or country. This appears on the face of it to have come to fruition. So since Priti Patel flew to Kigali and signed this memorandum of understanding, we've heard some very interesting commentary, not least from the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Walby who said this is a plan which cannot stand up to the judgment of God. Theresa May, the former Prime Minister and a long-standing Home Secretary, who authored the hostile environment, she's against this too. She says she does not support this plan on grounds of legality, practicality and efficacy. Yvette Cooper, who shadows Priti Patel, has criticised the whole plan and it's likely an ordinate cost. So it does seem that the battle lines are drawn. And so to give us analysis on what this all means, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Anne Nealon, who's a law lecturer at the University of Liverpool. So welcome, Anne. Thank you. Um, Anne's published a blog on the Rwanda deal titled The UK Rwanda and the Spectacle of Deterrence, which is a must read. We've shared a link to the blog on all of our social media platforms, so make sure to, to have a look at that. So, Anne, under current UK law, most asylum claims are admissible, notwithstanding how a person has arrived in the country. So how does this MOU operate, or how will this MOU operate within domestic and international law? So memoranda of understanding are not legally binding, so they are kind of really political agreements that exist between between states. Um, and we've seen some prior, you know, high profile examples of memoranda, memorandums of understanding, uh, for example, between uh, Italy and Libya. So mm -hmm. this is the kind of basis for uh, the agreement, which kind of creates uh, a bilateral situation where um, uh, migrants who are intercepted in the Mediterranean are then returned to Libya. Uh, and there has been, you know, like the, the Rwanda deal, um, money being offered to Libya in order to kind of bolster this agreement, cre create incentive for, for this kind of agreement, and really just establish this kind of uh, political understanding that this is this is how responses in the Mediterranean um, will operate. So I think that 
it's interesting when we start to talk about memorandums of understanding in the context uh, of the UK and migration, because we start to things start to be revealed to us, like the idea that well, actually, a lot of migration policy and stuff is really political. You know, the it has kind of legal ramifications ultimately when you start to to kind of you know reflect on how things pan out in the in the state and the introduction of things like the, the Nationality and Borders Act and the Borders Bill um, and other agreements like that. But ultimately you can see that there is a lot of um you know political wrangling going on in terms of your how these agreements you know come about and what the what the implication is for for states thereafter. Right, that's that's really interesting. So this is just essentially a, a political agreement, which is yeah. what sort of safeguards are they to this type of political agreement? Because presumably it sits alongside uh, the international refugee, the Geneva Convention for Refugees no. and Human the Human Rights Act here domestically. Not a treaty, so not kind of treated with the with the same the same level. So we have. Um, things coming, you know, as a result of this agreement, we are, you know, we can see the, the UK developing various different kind of policies, but really it's quite informal. It's kind of referred to as soft law, you know, so it's it's kind of agreement to, <laughs> to establish a kind of political, you know, um, dynamic between between two states. Um, and yeah, non, non-binding in terms of like international uh, and domestic law. Okay. I mean, that's, that's really fascinating. So in, in practice, how will this operate? What, what sort of rights do, say, people who come across the channel have um, when they arrive? What, what happens to, to their human rights? Are those enforceable or not? So this becomes complicated because I guess that what we're talking about with um, the Rwanda deal is is a few different things happening. So you have this kind of memorandum of understanding between uh, the UK and Rwanda in terms of you know what Rwanda will actually provide for uh, for people who are trans- transported there or, t- or you know in theory transported there so that the agreement um, refers to things like oh there will be um, you know a, a refugee assessment carried out uh, that people will be provided with accommodation mm-hmm. um, these kind of things that that, that will be provided um, but it's based on this idea and this comes from you know after the exit from from the European Union there was a bit of a you know a lacuna in terms of well what happens when people uh, arrive in the UK and there is a possibility that they've passed through another country so this is where the Dublin regulation used to kick in where um, if you for example arrived in the UK but the various mechanisms like biometric data, fingerprints, all these kind of things show that you first entered in, uh, for example, France or somewhere like that. The the Dublin regulation would allow you to, you know, not always enforceable. There are many problems in terms of returns and how they operate, but in theory, you could perhaps be sent to France to have your um, refugee application heard. So with the kind of exit from the European Union, exit from the Dublin regulation, um, there wasn't uh, another kind of theoretical safe third country that somebody could be could be sent to for, for the purposes of, well, really what it was sent to is deflection of, of migrants who are, who are arriving at the state, at the borders of the state. So in 2021, uh, they're introduced into the immigration rules, this rules about inadmissibility. 
So the idea would be um, if you travel through another country that would agree to take you back. And that's the important idea, because under the Dublin regulation, the idea was that France was under somewhat of an obligation to take back somebody who was who was uh, who had passed through the through the state. Um, but n- with the exit, this was gone. So you could see then afterwards the UK Priti Patel looking for other options in terms of states that might act as a safe third country that people could be sent to in order to have their um, asylum application processed. And so with the Rwandan deal, this acts in tandem with these inadmissibility rules, which say not only if you pass through a third country, but if there's any country willing to take you and assess your uh, asylum application. And this is the role that Rwanda fills. And this is what they what they will be doing, what they will be carrying out. So the shift that will happen in terms of how how this will operate, and it's 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 a little bit early to tell how this will actually shape out is what happens when you arrive usually when you arrive um, and you go through that kind of screening process when you when you arrive in the state and that's usually the stage the stage at which people are identified as you know having passed through a, another another country, country at that point right okay so at this screening process this is where perhaps the kind of the nuts and bolts of the Rwandan deal, plus the changes that the the Nationality and Borders Bill will bring in. So it's taking those immigration rules that are already in existence and putting them on statutory footing. So this will kind of bolster the state's ability to, you know, uh, reroute somebody who's who's a, who's attempted to to enter the who enter the state and apply and apply for asylum. So that's that's the kind of um, shift that's going to happen as I said it's those rules are already technically in existence but there is a, a stronger kind of you know statutory footing with the nationality and borders bill if when if that will be that will be brought in um, so at that point you start to talk about well what kind of you know um, representations you can make about the risks associated with you being sent to Rwanda so there is obviously immediate concerns for certain groups of people who might be at risk because of their ethnic identity. There might be risk groups of people who are LGBTQ and um, risk groups, you know, and just the general kind of uh, issue about the safety within, within Rwanda itself. And um, that the questions have been have been raised about that. It, it sounds like a minefield because lay, yeah. lay people who will be listening to this, will be trying to reconcile um, this wonderful document, the, the Refugee Convention, mm-hmm. that sort of allows people to, to arrive in a state without prior authorization and to pass through third safe countries, mm-hmm. um, which the Dublin regulations used to provide for, for returning those people, mm-hmm. now apparently Rwanda. And they'll wonder, they'll wonder why why are those inadmissibility inadmissibility rules why do they trump the refugee convention well the argument would be that they don't because the the way that the refugee convention has been interpreted by a lot of states is that you know there is this absolute rule against refoulement so the idea that you would be returned to a state where you would be exposed to um persecution on one of the the five grounds set out in the in the refugee um, convention um 
And the argument would be that, well, that's that's really what you're protecting against. And what you can offer instead, and this, you know, this goes back a few decades now at this point, is an alternative way of getting refugee protection. So the idea that, um, you know, for example, Australia, you know, the 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 Tampa Bay affair, the Tampa um, MV Tampa affair, mm. uh, whereby the solution that they came up with was, well, we're not going to return people directly from where they came, where they tried to escape. We will send them to a third location, Christmas Island or wherever it was at the time that they decided. Mm-hmm. And we can say that they will get an assessment there. We won't take them directly into, into the mainland. And from the perspective of the state, they have relieved themselves of their obligation. They have not returned somebody to, to a risk of refoulement and they have provided a refugee assessment process. But, you know, it's very clear that in terms of safety, in terms of like the the quality of life that somebody can expect as a result of that is is very different from um, what they what they would kind of imagine for themselves. And there has been over the years certainly this real reduction of the refugee convention down to something incredibly bare bones. So the it has been just reduced down to not refueling somebody. But the Refugee Convention has, says lots about, you know, the idea that you should support refugees to kind of move on with their lives, to be able to kind of build a new lives for themselves. And um, if they want to go back to their to their country of origin, that they should be able to. And this has kind of really fallen by the wayside. And the, the focus has been on, well, how do we avoid responsibility for refugees? We will have the most kind of cynical interpretation um, of the Uh, of the refugee convention that we possibly can and we'll interpret some ideas so for example the idea of passing through a safe third country it doesn't really say that in the refugee convention it says that you know um, you should really go to the to the closest state but it doesn't say that you should be returned if you don't if you don't actually go to the closest state there is plenty in the refugee convention that understands that people will need to if they want to start their lives again go to a country where they can speak the language, go to a country where their qualifications will be recognized. All these kinds of things have been ignored because the focus has been just on this very bare um, obligation of of not refueling somebody. Right, okay. It it sounds to me like, so there won't be any breaches of any international law, rather breaches of the spirit and the letter of the law, and there's some there's some margin of appreciation for states to interpret it how they wish. Certainly, and I think that really the the refugee convention was designed that way. You know, it's not designed by refugees; <laughs> it's designed by states. Um, yeah. And you know, it, it comes after there's various different iterations of the, the refugee convention before we have the, the one that we that we know today and. It went from kind of looking at specific groups that would be requiring um, protection, international protection, and then moved on to this more kind of sort of universal definition uh, of, a, of a refugee that it can be applied to 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 lots of um, lots of different groups. But yes, yeah, certainly it is it is about it's it's from the state's perspective, and you know certainly in 1951 it was established. You know there was plenty of. Um, bad rhetoric about refugees and you know it wouldn't it's not a million miles away from the kind of things that we hear nowadays about 
the risks and the dangers of refugees that, that gets kind of reported in various media outlets. Okay, let's let's look at the, the legal framework that exists currently for people who have claims which are admissible here. Theresa May mentioned there that she doesn't think that this is legally sound. What what will lawyers who represent those people who whose claims will won't be admissible, what could they possibly argue to try and stop those people from going to Rwanda? Um it it is difficult. I mean, I don't I I um not being a solicitor myself, I can only yeah. kind of have a have a general kind of su- kind of surmise of what might be argued Mm. I guess that there are concerns like I mentioned already about article 3 of um, the ECHR and then that's that's obviously replicated in the Human Rights Act as well Um, and that really ties into the the non-refoulement argument that you shouldn't um, that you shouldn't be sent somewhere where you would be subject to to uh, you know um, in the case of Article 3, torture and inhuman and degrading treatment. And there is an extraterritorial effect with Article 3. So, you know, it's not just uh, within the UK. It, it applies. It applies that if you if you send somebody to, um, to another state, that this would be the, an issue. The problems that you see with these kinds of, you know, this is when it gets to that stage and when it when it's act when it's going to be on that scale that's a real concern because what the primary objective of the state is to get people out mm. um and because it means that it's very difficult to make um assertions on the basis of article 3 when you're outside of the state you know you it really creates this chasm between you know rights you should be entitled to and your actual uh, access to them and how you're able to um, kind of, you know, inform or just articulate your your um, uh, right to those rights. Um, so this is, you know, this is why it, it's this this is why it has been dreamt up. It is it is kind of trying to create a a way of really divorcing uh, the state from any kind of responsibility towards people and the the way that the the Rwanda deal in particular is set up. It is it is establishing Rwanda as the place where you will apply for asylum and you will get your asylum there and your your you know legal status will be as a, a refugee in in Rwanda and. Most of the time, as, as a lot of people with refugee status know, it is very difficult to travel across borders as a, as a refugee. You have to get special documents. It's very difficult, you know, sometimes borders to, to say that you have a right to travel as a refugee. So this, this creates all these kinds of um, these kinds of problems. Mm. Yeah, you note there that people will now have to essentially claim asylum in Rwanda. And mm-hmm. if they get refugee status, it's granted by the Rwanda government. Mm-hmm. Is there a precedent of such a memoranda ever? So we have, you know, similar examples of the the kind of dynamic that was set up with um, Australia and Nauru and Papua New Guinea. Um, but there... Those and there is various different kind of assertions that, well, you know, like similar to how 
um, the UK is likely to to argue that this is a sovereign state. They make a decision. This is how this is how it's going to be assessed. It's no longer our problem. It's no longer our business because they have agreed to um, receive receive these people as um, asylum applicants. Mm. Um, but the the Australia, um, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, and other other different islands that were used. Um, there was still very clearly that Australia had power over how this was all operating. The money was coming from Australia. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we've seen the example of the, the medevac, so people being evacuated from um, the, the, the processing centres to Australia because of how ill, unwell, depressed, suicidal the people were be- becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, that really showed that there wasn't this like massive chasm or that, that that these were two totally different things operating that there was control over how this was um this was happening i think <laughs> the the way that the the uk is, has organized this and has has created this it like you know the, there's reference to this idea of one way ticket to to rwanda etc cetera, etc cetera. but is that true because it's not i don't think that people will stay in rwanda really will they you know they do, they're do going to move on do, hmm? do you you don't think people will stay in rwanda no <laughs> i think they'll try to move i mm. think they'll try to make the journey again i don't i mean this is just me kind of speculating but i don't think that this is you know the idea is like rerouting people to rwanda and this will be the end of our issue with with migrants that, that, that I, I don't think that that's um going going to be the case um, I think that people will 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 still try to access the state. So I don't think it's it's not it's not a solution I, to to the idea that people will try to access the the UK. Again, so the the, the deterrent effect you don't think will actually happen because in your in your blog, you you yeah. talk about how you think that there is what the government is attempting to do is to have this spectacle of of deterrence mm-hmm. and. Um, curiously, I, I found what you wrote really interesting in that you also mentioned that a, a spectacle of necessary suffering so mm. far as the state is, is concerned. Talk, talk to us about that and um, sort of explain so, what you meant by that. So this is based on, on the work of um, Pugliese, who, who writes about the kind of um, architecture of suffering as well and the, the spectacle associated with that so in particular he refers to um the um the way that certain detention uh, places in australia and offshore of australia were particularly um uh awful looking really that there's like barbed wire over the top of the 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 fencing that it's really presented as a camp as, as somewhere where people would be sent to be punished um, mm. for, for, for what they've done. And this creates this kind of understanding among the public that, you know, the people who are trying to, you know, claim asylum and so on are not deserving, that they are people who are, you know, we're showing you that they are being punished, that they that they shouldn't have tried to enter the state, you know, and anything to do with the story behind why they tried to enter the state, you know, the reasons as to why 
they did that becomes silenced um and the focus becomes on the on the spectacle and everything is you know as the board said mediated through the spectacle that it's all about the images that are being um constantly um you know repeated on various different cycles and this creates a sense and a narrative about um in this case migrants and how and when they should access the state and then that's kind of bolstered as well by this this kind of you know false uh binary created by people like patel and may before her and you know various other home secretaries back 20 30 years at this point that there are legal and illegal mm-hmm. people who enter but this is this is wrong because basically there is no way that you can get a visa to enter the UK as a as an asylum seeker there is just no option for you to do that so you are forced by the way that the system is set up to clandestinely enter the state to enter the state with false papers false documents that you have no other option um than to than to do that so by kind of combining that narrative of legal and illegal and these kind of images that keep kind of get being you know presented to us to the public over and over again um that creates this kind of expectation among the public about that that is that is what we that is what we expect in terms of how migrants are treated and then i mentioned the more recent introduction of um military barracks to hold asylum seekers and this is you know really kind of reflecting that as well that we can see people being held in incredibly militarized um uh looking you know accommodation very much like you know i, I mentioned the blog as well where we see Guantanamo Bay um or a lot of Haitian migrants being being held in, in in there as well and various other examples where ex-military barracks are used to to house migrants and this really reinforces this this concept of deservedness and lack of deservedness um in in the narrative and you know the Rwanda deal is just another step in that because uh you know we see reference as well to how people are going to be detained uh, prior to being sent to Rwanda this all kind of you know reinforces and supports this idea about um you know the the, the visualities associated with with migration so the the thing that is important is how this is viewed by the public so mm. a lot of people make the point that it's expensive it's super expensive you know that's the reason why it's it, it's bad <laughs> to, to to do this kind of um this kind of scheme but that's almost not important to to well, patel and to 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 kind of the expectation that comes from well we have a problem with with people uh, w- with migrants we have been told that this is how they should be treated so this is the emphasis this is this is most important this is what it has been emphasized and how how they should be treated so that's yeah, no, <laughs> that's, that's the argument that i make it's a bit bleak but yes that's the argument yeah this the spectacle really starts um at sea because what we saw yeah. at least last summer is the BBC, its its breakfast program for yeah. a whole week, had cameras um, across the channel filming people arriving. And at some points, the reporters actually shouting at the migrants and asking them, why do you want to come to Britain? 
is this yeah. what is is all news large main the mainstream media are they playing into the hands of what the government wants the public to see and will we see those people who arrive across the channel will we see them transported to york and will we actually see them get on planes and be removed to Rwanda? Do you, do you think that's what the deterrent effect is designed? That's how it's designed to operate and how the public mm. should view it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of the whole, like uh, the examples that I give as well, the, the kind of, you know, um, Australian example and the, um, the example of the Haitian refugees over in America as well, it is definitely directly responding to this like very visible arrival of, of migrants in boats. You know, there's we know that the migrants in boats accounts for a tiny proportion of migrants who arrive in the UK, even in terms of people who, who claim asylum. But it's overstated in terms of the media coverage, uh, in terms of how people are represented in the media. And um, this this whole like it, it, it is this kind of transformation of the hyper visible into the invisible. So it's it's responding to this this sense of, well, this is a this is being perceived as a threat, you know. Mm -hmm. However, a few people in a in a dinghy <laughs> looking for protection can be perceived as a threat. This is perceived as a threat, um, and the way that we will respond to this threat uh, is to very publicly announce that we will deal with them in this particular way. We'll we'll, we'll present them in military barracks, and then we'll we'll tell the public that we will send them elsewhere. They'll be they'll be gone from the from the boundaries of the state, um, and this is how it's operated in the past. And then there's a sense of, well, they become invisible, they become not part of the kind of the psyche of the public anymore, and they're, they're gone. But that didn't really work that way in Australia, to be mm. honest. You know, there was really some serious backlash from the public, ultimately, with with respect to how people were, were treated um, in the in the offshoring situations in Australia. So I don't... And, and we know that the Australian offshoring system is basically defunct now. It doesn't really exist in the same way as it did before. So, I mean, it could be a very elaborate way to just create a lot of unnecessary suffering for people for something that will actually be very um, unworkable. Um, yeah. Yeah, so this, this is Theresa May's point. And it's 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 strange that we have to use Teresa as a, <laughs> as the example or, or a, a paragon of virtue when it comes to 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 this system. Let's yeah. talk about let's talk about historical and contemporary offshoring. So mm -hmm. we've seen the examples of Guam and Guantanamo Bay in in the, with the United States government intercepting mm -hmm. people who are coming from Haiti and mm -hmm. Cuba. And we've also seen, uh, as you've referred to, um, the use of Nauru Island in, in Australia. Would you say that these schemes have worked? What, what happened in the United States? Why do they stop using that? I think that it just, 
<laughs> it is something that just became unworkable in that context. I think that in the context of Australia, as we mentioned already, mm. um, it's something that became um, very, very difficult to to operate as well. These these things become <laughs> very, very difficult to operate. The the connections that we see with those those examples is a colonial connection with with how they they use these sites to basically create their own kind of migration deflection system so you know there is this like real colonial logic attached to how how they how they operate these uh, these types of 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 processing centers offshoring centers you know mm. there isn't this connection between um like the uk and rwanda like but there is this just general kind of colonial logic in associated with the continent of africa and how how the 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 state interacts with that as well and um, so there is there is something kind of you know with with those other examples there was like this this sense as you mentioned already you know the geographic nature of it, the fact that these are islands, islands, and that the the fact that this is is something to do with people arriving by boats, but then you have this kind of new development in the context of Rwanda, where this is a landlocked state. This is a state that doesn't have a specific, like, very specific colonial relationship with with the UK, but you still have this kind of, you know, redirection remap re reorientation of of people to um to the country because of how the 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 kind of previous policies have have developed so this is seems to be the next step and with the uk uh rwanda agreement we now see subsequently that denmark has expressed an interest in in this this agreement that, that uh, the UK has has created, and that they're seeking to kind of uh, acquire a similar kind of uh, agreement with Rwanda. Now, Rwanda is highly densely populated country, so I don't know how they are going to operate to kind of provide the service to to all European countries. If that seems to be the the way things are going, but there is this. This this kind of sense of you know a past of exploitation mm-hmm. and taking advantage of a space and that being kind of on a continuum with with what is being thought of and how it's being organised again today. So so what what do you think in the end will will stop this? Do you think it will just become unworkable in the same that the British government will discover in the same way that the United States and that Australia because of the costs as well, which are are billions of of dollars in Australia to, to, to run the scheme, that in the end the public won't accept that this is something that Britain should be doing? I think that there is no quick solution to this. I think that we're we are now reaping what has been sown for a very long time in terms of how migrants are talked about, how asylum seekers are, are being talked about, and how um, there's just been this like constant chipping away of 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 the idea that somebody who is you know in need of protection should be should be given it, mm. um, and I I don't I don't know 
like as I as I mentioned in my in my blog, I don't know if appeals to um, cost is is actually helpful because if we had a really inhumane but cheap system, would that be better? You know, if we were able to get something done on the cheap with offshoring people. I don't know, in the Isle of Man or something like that would be, <laughs> I mean, not possible for a variety of reasons. Yeah. But, you know, is that is that something that that is desirable? So and and I think that, like, as I said already, the, the cost is almost, you know, by the way, from the perspective of 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 Patel and how her narrative has been set up and how she positions it in relation to um, um, to to the public as well. So. I wonder about how how that's um, assessed, and I also wonder how many people will actually ultimately be transported to Rwanda. Um, I think that we have vague indications that uh, they're only sending men under forty. I think that was the last claim, but there's nothing in the the, the memorandum that says that that's that's who the only group that 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 will be that will be sent. Um, but I think that you know how how this will actually operate the the kind of the burdensomeness of it as well could be could be problematic. We already see a number of challenges coming through uh, in relation to um, people who would potentially be be transferred under under the scheme. Um, so I think that we really. I mean, this sounds a bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a short term solution, but we we really need to stop like talking about migrants and asylum seekers or the the discourse really needs to move toward thinking of, of them as people who were displaced people who were forced to to leave the situation that they were in and that they were forced to kind of cross cross borders and i mean one of the hopeful things about the the situation in ukraine and how people have been responding to that is this this like real emergence of empathy towards people having to to do that and really i think that there needs to just be a, a real expansion of that empathy to all people who are who are forced to um to flee their homes because we can see in real time with the with the ukrainian situation that you know the bureaucracy that has been introduced, how difficult it is to actually get access to the UK, even though a lot of concessions have been made and a lot of a number of routes have been made available to people, that it's still so difficult. And it really highlights the fact that if you're in the middle of a war situation, if you're in the middle of a conflict situation and you need to get out, mm -hmm. you don't have time to, to go through these like safe channels, which as we know, don't really exist anyway. So it's it's now more than ever that we need the idea of you know a ref a refugee convention that at very least protects you to um claim asylum somewhere and not have to go through these kind of bureaucratic bureaucratic hoops mm -hmm. um and and that needs to be kind of reinforced i think because we are living now in a in an era where people you know, or states rather, are trying to create this sort of bespoke version of a refugee convention that suits them. You know, mm -hmm. even the idea that you know uh, the the UK wouldn't, in theory, accept people coming from Ukraine and just claiming asylum by you know perhaps entering through Ireland or something like that. 
is the idea that they can they can refashion something that suits suits them and their interests and kind of you know really takes as you mentioned already the spirit of the convention and rubbishes it you know just creates um you know just really kind of trashes it and and misunderstanding the the reasons as to why people are, are fleeing so i think that you know the there really has to be an understanding and appeal with people to the idea that this could be you this could be something that is happening to you and as i mentioned in the blog you know mm. we're looking down the barrel of you know incredible increases in temperatures in, in in the earth and we are not as secure and safe as we like to think we are and we could all find ourselves in a situation where we are displaced and if we've kind of created and built this kind of you know to borrow from but yes this architecture of suffering in terms yeah. of bureaucracy and all these these barriers that we have um you know that's that's something that we need to we need to think about yeah, and, and do you think, um, because earlier re you referred to this picture that the government paints of, of deserving and undeserving refugees, mm -hmm. that the response to, to Ukrainian refugees alongside putting through Parliament and enacting into legislation a really regressive nationality and borders bill, mm -hmm. that those two things sit alongside each other where the government is in a position where it can pick and choose to give safe passage to Ukrainians mm. who granted arm or escaping bombs. So are Syrians. Mm -hmm. So are people from Yemen. So yeah. are people from Afghanistan. That, yeah. that in the end, it looks like the state is legislating for direct discrimination. Mm. I think... Well, first of all, as I said already, paltry numbers of, of Ukrainians actually getting access to to the state under under the schemes that that, yeah. that have been that, that have been established. But there is that risk of kind of a race to the bottom <laughs> with yeah. these kinds of arguments. Like um I I understand the point that you're making and I I, I have you know the similar kind of concerns about like a two-tier kind of system emerging well it's already here mm. um but i do i do i am concerned about how that could create like a race to the bottom in terms of well oh you don't want us treating <laughs> this group that well okay we'll treat everybody terribly um mm. i'm not sure if if that can given how how like precariously those kind of rights are offered at times mm. uh, and i think that you know there's there's this real we, we really need to dig into this idea of like full solidarity with with groups that are that are are being displaced um and i i don't know how well i i acknowledge that argument and i think that there's there's truth there's truth there and there's you know obviously an incredibly kind of racialized element going on there in terms of how people are being coded and how their kind of deservedness is being coded too i think that we need to push against kind of you know too too much like compare comparing groups that are you know let's face it neither of them in great in a great situation yeah. and push more towards well you can offer ukrainian refugees this or you potentially could offer ukrainian refugees this why can't we push this further and mm -hmm. kind of try to push it in a more 
positive way or that's probably the wrong word but trying to push through like think of how this can create more rights rather than close down rights for for others yeah. um so the, this, this is the idea the suggestion there is that there aren't sufficient safe routes that refugees can access and yeah. that because the government even though they're really slow with their bureaucracy they yeah. are creating some safe passage for ukrainians mm -hmm. that in the end Will the refugee convention survive or if governments decide that resettlement is really the way that you create safe passage? Because I, I always despair when I hear politicians talk about safe and legal routes mm -hmm. as if there is some, you know, like some legislation that's set out there which makes things very legal for, yeah. for, for all kinds of refugees. What, what do you think will happen? Do you think... It will survive the refugee convention, or are we just going to move to a system of resettlement? Um, well, a move to a system of resettlement would be a disaster, <laughs> yeah. because the UK doesn't. It, it offers relatively useless numbers in terms of the the kind of the 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 number of places it will offer. You know, in twenty twenty during the pandemic, ongoing pandemic. Um, it was zero. There was no resettlements uh, mm. offered at all. Um, and the numbers have been pretty, pretty bad. You know, they rolled out this number of like 28,000, but I think it's it's over something like five or six years or something like that. It's really, really small. When you look at other countries um, that neighbor um, refugee creating countries, that they're taking much higher, higher numbers of, of uh, refugees, for example, Lebanon. Is like a million refugees, maybe more. Um, so these kind of numbers are are not are not, you know, the resettlement route. I have absolutely no confidence in that as as something that will actually provide help or sufficient um, assistance or fulfill any kind of ob international obligation um, to to refugees. Um, I think that we have to really push and ensure that the refugee convention which has its problems, obviously, you know, as I said already, designed by states and so on, but it, it at the very least, it is something that provides um, the protection that people need, people who are forced to just flee um, at very short notice, who can't go through a bureaucratic system of visas and so on, that they need to be, um, they need to be able to go and, and uh, seek, a, seek asylum um, and, and where, they, where they need to as well, you know, a place where they can the language a place where they can you know move on with their lives and so on or uh, or at least you know be able to access education work and so on mm. so these kind of things really need to be pushed pushed to be saved and like you say already you know safe and legal routes well it's not safe for a lot of people who are who are traveling across the channel but it is legal <laughs> under the refugee convention to to you know seek asylum you know you're you're looking you're looking for asylum and you are um you are you are protected under the refugee convention for doing that so mm. it is it is a system kind of trying to move away create a kind of a bespoke uh, version of uh, of asylum or a kind of a nod to the idea of asylum but a move to resettlement is not it's not a it's not a goer in terms of you know actually providing protection to to people that they need in the numbers that that people need protection it's a it's a very slight concession to an international obligation so i think that we we must 
<laughs> we must push against these this kind of trend we must we must try to reinforce the idea and challenge the language certainly that's being used to describe it you know safe legal routes but what do you mean by that does this actually exist is this something that is um that exists in reality and i think that you know <laughs> there are certain kind of uh, reporters and media outlets that are very good at holding um, the government to account, but you know, <laughs> I think we know very already few. that there yeah. is, yeah, that there's uh, certain publications and incredibly wide circulation that really reinforce um, a, a government narrative, and it's very difficult sometimes to see where. The government policy ends and the the narrative of the the, the, the newspaper begins it, it becomes kind of circular and reinforcing um each other finally what, what do you think will happen because when we add all of this together the yeah. deterrent effect the rwanda deal the opening of these institutionalized institutionalized accommodation like Napier barracks and Pinali. Is is this the end of the ability of people who are fleeing conflict to just arrive in Britain and be able to claim asylum? I think I I don't know is the short answer. Mm. But I think that as long as there is some kind of effort to be seen to have honor obligations towards refugees, that there is a possibility to push and ensure that those are not just really um, kind of hollow, that there is some kind of meaning uh, behind them as well. I think that, you know, really we, we all have a, a res like responsibility or you know we need to make sure that I mean not just how we vote <laughs> but how we uh kind of speak about things that we are challenging um how how this is uh, represented I think it's very hard to know where this leads I think that um the use of these kinds of institutions it, they are extremely troubling um but there, again, we see in, in various different iterations, you know, that people who live local to, for example, Napier Barracks, mm -hmm. they were really unhappy with how, how this was, was carried out. They felt very upset about how, how people are being treated and they were, you know, launching petitions um, to, to state that, that people should not be held in, in the barracks knowing that it was um that it was like problematic and, and a risk to, to to people's health health as well so i think that you know there is enough there is there's you know people who are you know living near people who are who are being held in, in detention who are kind of exposed to this they can see that this is a problem and i think that you know the kind of the way that it kind of gets refracted through the media, some of this gets lost. But I think that, you know, there are like a lot of people in Britain, the UK more generally, um, that are really trying to kind of raise objections to 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 how people are being treated. Mm. And I think that it really kind of comes to, I mean, there are obviously kind of legal routes that we can that we can use, we can 
point to the way in which Article 3 can offer some kind of respite from people being returned to Rwanda, um, that, you know, there's challenges that can be made in the courts. But I think that ultimately it will it will come back down to, you know, really how the public responds, how the public feels about it. And I think that really, you know, articulating that to the government um, will be will be really important to ensure that, you know, we don't go too far down this route. No, thank you, Anne. Thank you for your, your insight and your analysis. Okay, thank you. So that was Anne Nealon's analysis of this Rwanda deal, which I found really instructive. She asked a very poignant question. Why do some people feel threatened by five people on a dinghy boat rather than feel mortified by the spectacle of suffering? Must those vulnerable people who have no way of getting a visa or using a so-called safe route when they flee war really face the prospect of being criminalized for their mode of arrival, used as a spectacle of deterrence, warehoused as human cargo, and disused military barracks before being banished with a one-way ticket to Rwanda. Must we really deploy Victorian logics in the 21st century? That this policy has actually come to fruition is not only jarring, but it's extraordinary. And as Anne argued and almost pleaded, we need to create an awareness in the public's consciousness of the far-reaching regressive consequences of this Rwanda deal and the legislation that underpins it, the Nationality and Borders Bill, which could become an act this week. What is required, I suppose, is a movement of people who reject these base ideas and this architecture of oppression. So the one simple act you can do to play your part in raising awareness is to share this episode with your friends and family and also subscribe, like and follow us. At still we rise p on all our social media platforms so until the next episode of the still we rise podcast thanks for listening and sharing and goodbye